neighbors. Just that word evokes so many images, doesn't it? You thought of someone, maybe you thought of a few people because neighbors, they live in close proximity to us. They're close to um, the place where we lay our head down and where we eat our meals. They are the people closest to our uh, real, the core of our existence. So neighbors are important. And I I love that little uh, tune State Farm has, Like a Good Neighbor. State Farm is there. I love the Peyton Manning and Brad Paisley commercials because Peyton is always trying to get him to let him be in the band, you know, and write the jingle. And I don't think Peyton can sing. But um, but it's great. And I love that idea. Like, what is a good neighbor? And I love the idea of, of like maybe exploring that question. But when we do things like that, one of the things we can do that's amiss is we can get into the legalese of it. We can get into the legalese around, and when I say legalese, I mean like a a lawyer's document where um, like when our church wrote the bylaws for our church and we had it done and it was really good and we took our beliefs and these different things and then there were pages and pages of legalese and I was like, what does this mean? I don't understand what this means. And they would explain to me what a whole page means in one sentence. I'm like, why can't you say that in one sentence? And they would say, we need all that jargon, all that legalese in there to cover our bases. I'm like, our bases must be huge. Like, why do we need to say all that? But it was the legalese. It dotted the I's, crossed the T's, and put the commas, periods, and question marks in. It laid down the clarity of what we were trying to say, and it did so in such extreme ways that I got confused with what we were saying. Legalese is a bunch of words, and they're big words, they're very intentional words. So when we look at legalese, when it comes to neighbors, to this relational kind of thing, we can find ourselves asking questions like, and getting into the legalese of, well, who exactly is my neighbor? Or what exactly is a good neighbor? We can start wanting to clearly define that. And uh, we would like to define this specifically. And I think we want to do this because we want to know who we can and cannot like. We want to know the rules. What can we get away with? What can we get out of? What? Give me the give me the margins. Give me the rules. Give me the checklist that I can follow. And this isn't new. This isn't new at all. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan when the Jewish legal expert asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. And what he said was, he, well, what he drove at was um, your neighbor is not the people who just um, are just like you. Your neighbor isn't the person you prefer. He, he really drove this home because this man wanted to justify himself. That's what Scripture says. Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who then is my neighbor? So who do I have to be nice to? Who can I ignore, right? Because we'd like to know that too. Who gets my time? Who do I get a brush off? And who can I be mean to? And, and we never say this in church. You know, you never say like, no, I want to know who I can be mean to. I want to know who I can act completely indifferent to. We, we want to know these things. Who can I get back, get back at? Who can I not care about? Who are the valuable and unvaluable people? Let me know the rules so I can tick the right boxes. That's legalistic. That's legalistic. That's following the rule of the law, the letter of the law, the law but not the spirit of the law. There's a spirit to the law, a spirit that informs it and says, do these things 
but it's supposed to cover a broader spectrum. It's the reason the Pharisees hated Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law that they loved, but they were busy creating a resume that looked really good, how they ticked all the right religious boxes. They did all the right things. They dotted the I's and crossed the T's. Their life looked great and was wonderful, and they were not fulfilling the law of God with their hearts, though their bodies looked good. Jesus went as far as to say to them, you guys, I mean, this is the greatest of insults you could throw at a Jewish Pharisee. You're whitewashed tombs. You're a tomb with a nice paint job. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Oh, like for them, that was such an offense. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus say it? Because what he was saying is it's not about how you look. It's not the boxes you tick. It's not the legal ease. What it actually is is it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And when we ask who exactly is my neighbor or what exactly is a good neighbor, deep down I believe what we're asking is this. Can you help me set parameters for my apathy? Who can I truly not care about? And when you talk about this world that has so much love in it and so much hate in it, and people think love and hate and they're opposites. No, the opposite of love is not hate. Hate is a forceful thing. The opposite of love is apathy. Apathy, the absolute indifference to God, to God's created human beings who bear his image, who may be suffering or needing something, or, or someone who just needs a conversation. It's, we want to find out what are the parameters for me to be a good neighbor, but honestly, what are the parameters for my apathy? I want to know how much I have to give. So, who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? I would say this, according to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God, it's everyone. It is everyone. There is nobody who is not your neighbor, which some of you are like, oh, no, Eric's my neighbor. And you know what? Yeah, that's true. And you know what? There's some people I don't want to be my neighbor too. I know it's not the nice pastoral thing to say, but I'm a human being. You're a human being. We don't all, like, you don't have to want to be neighbors, But that doesn't change the fact that Christ called us to it. We have to love people and treat them as our neighbor, people who are close to us, right? We have to receive them. And it's hard, and it can be difficult. Here's the thing. When we look at this, we can see that Paul is driving at this truth in Colossians chapter 3 when he says, here in this faith, there is no Jew or Gentile. By the way, there's no greater definition of separation in the ancient world than that, right? Jew or Gentile, select or pagan is what he's saying. And Paul says, here there is neither Jew nor Gentile, circumcised, Jew again, or uncircumcised, which means Gentile. So he's saying it twice, meaning there's a lot of meaning in that. Here there is neither Jew nor Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, Scythian, barbarian, slave or free. Here God is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's holy people, holy means set apart, right? So as God's selected people, God's people, therefore as God's holy people, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And bear with each other and forgive one another as anyone 
may have an offense against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these things, put on love. Put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. No one is off the list. Everybody's our neighbor. Everybody is our neighbor. So your physical neighbors, actually let me do this. I want to go through a list of people because I think it's a fairly good and exhaustive list. This is who I believe are your neighbors. Oh, be prepared. Here we go. Your physical neighbors, the people who live by you. It's pretty easy. Okay. Your coworkers, your boss, your employees, your customers, your senators. Whoa. Wait, yeah, right, what? Right? Now, so now we pull politicians in, so that gets a little weird. Um, so your senators, the person you get groceries from, the waiter at your favorite restaurant, love them. The waiter at the restaurant you hate the most, whoa, I think they spit in my food. Um, the person that you rent an Airbnb from, your Uber driver, your kid's coach, who didn't play your kid maybe enough, and he can't be your neighbor, but no, he is. Um, your parent's nurse, your daughter's boyfriend, Boop, time out, technical foul. I like Tristan a lot. You know I like you, Tristan. But here's the thing, you're my daughter's boyfriend, so, right? You're like, I don't know if that dude's my neighbor. Maybe he can be my neighbor if he becomes my son-in-law. But until then, ah, you know, you don't want that. It's hard to say this. Your daughter's boyfriend, your, do- your son's girlfriend, um, your dog walker's uncle's third cousin's hairstylist, everyone, all of us are neighbors. We are this neighborhood. We are this deeply intertwined, connected people bound by the fact that we bear the image of God, each one of us, uniquely in our life. And therefore, God values us in such a way. So we have to value one. Another, So I want to give you a chance to receive, as I'm actually working through this myself, some neighborly advice from the book of Proverbs. Neighborly advice from the book of Proverbs. Um, It's pretty straightforward, and I love it. I love how Solomon wrote. Check this out. It says this, Proverbs 25, 17. It says, um, seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Too much of you, and they will hate you. <laughs> I think that's great. And um, we actually, uh, we have some friends, and they are early to bed people. You know, like, I would say, like, Erica and I, we're, we're night owls. We like to be up late, and um, I don't like the mornings. I, I, I don't believe early to bed and early to rise makes you healthy, wealthy, and wise. I think it makes you um, sleepy at night and happy in the mornings. I would rather be awake at night and sleepy in the morning. That's just the way I roll, but, you know, it's fine. But our friends are early risers. Like, seriously, you feed them a warm meal at 6 p.m., and they're like, well, golly, I think I may need to hit the sack. Like, they go to bed early, and that's great. But here's the weird thing. Like, they had friends one time who came over and we went to their house and they actually told us this story of how their friends came over and at like 10 p.m. they started playing cards or something. They were like, they broke out games and we were like dying. We're like, they were so tired and they were like, oh my goodness. And they stayed until late into the night and they're like, we didn't have them back over. We were shot the next day. We were ruined, right? That's a really true thing, an overstay. Right, when you overstay, and I think I've committed this error before because there's some people who haven't invited me back over, but still. Um, the overstay, too much, do, seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Too much of you, they will hate you. Ouch. Okay, but the next one, Proverbs 26, 18 and 19. Listen to the language of this. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death. 
<laughs> That's what it says. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. I mean, that's some serious. Can you imagine having someone in your neighborhood with flaming arrows of death, a maniac shooting them? I mean, like, I'm just joking, right? Spear your dog. Oh, Fido, right? Terrible. Terrible. So when you look at this, you're like, my goodness, what could that look like? I want to tell you a real quick story. When I was in Mercy Ships, uh, one of my good friends, he's still one of my good friends, Dan, and I know Dan watches uh, the foundry down in Dan and Leanne do, and uh, Dan had an ability to say um, funny but terrible things, really, and uh, in a lighthearted way, and it took you a second to get it, but here's the thing. I was at the helm of the ship. We were in the Columbia River in Oregon, going from Portland out to the mouth of the Columbia at Astoria, Oregon, out into the Pacific. So I'm at the helm. There's a shipping pilot standing next to me. He would go off the bridge wing, and he'd be watching his buoys. They know the ship and the shipping lanes like they've memorized them. And he'd just give you a command, port five, and you'd go, port five I, and you'd turn the the, um, helm over to port five on the... um, five degrees of rudder, and he'd just kind of steer you through this. And my buddy Dan makes this horrifying comment because the church had decided to bless our crew, the missionary ship, um, with something. And Dan makes this really weird joke, and it just made things so awkward. And I will never forget, I couldn't leave. I was driving the ship. I couldn't leave. And he said it, and the captain just looked at him and just walked off the stage. And the, and the pilot looked at him and just kind of shook his head and then stood there. It was awkward. The crickets quit chirping. Later on, I'm like, dude, what's your problem? I was trapped there. He's like, dude, I was just joking. I'm like, I will never forget that. It was so horrifying and embarrassing. But um, we want to dig in to this and say, like, yeah, there's some funny things that are true, and we can look at that, but there's also some things that maybe are a little more nuanced and we can lean in on these and learn what it is to be a good neighbor. So join me as we work through these real quickly. Proverbs 3, 27 and 28 says this, do not withhold good from those to whom it's due. When it's in your power to act, do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. Think back over last week. Just take a minute, roll the tape back over last week. Did you withhold good from someone? Did you withhold good from someone? And that good could have been nothing more than a smile, a good morning, um, just a friendly gesture. One of the things I've been convicted of lately is like if I go get a cup of coffee or something, I, I haven't been really kind. I've been thinking a lot and I've been just, I don't know, thinking a lot. And um, and Erica said to me, she's like, you, you didn't even talk to the person when they said good morning. You just held out your card. And I was like, oh, that is what I'm talking about. It takes me no effort to get out of my own head and be like, good morning, and be nice, and be generous, and be kind, or maybe hold the door open for a mom who's coming through with her little gaggle of children behind her, and, and just be, be patient, be nice. Um, did someone need a friend around you? Someone need a listening ear? Did someone um, maybe need a ride to the doctor? Did someone maybe just need you to notice that they're alive, and they're right in front of you, and you with held good by not even addressing the fact that they're there? Have you withheld good because maybe it just wasn't, you didn't want to give good? Yeah, catch me tomorrow. I'll I'll do it then. Did you spend time with anyone who really needed good from you? 
Did you sit in meetings and it was all about you? Did you have conversations where maybe your husband or your wife needed you to worry about them or to be interested in them and you didn't take the time to get over yourself or make the effort to do that? Did you have someone who needed good from you, someone who needed you maybe to pray for them? Can I tell you something? It blesses people's soul when you just say, can I pray for you? If you're having a conversation and you recognize they may need just a little something, something, just take them before the Lord and say, can I pray for you real quick? I have never, never, never met someone who doesn't say thank you afterwards. You're withholding good when you, when you won't even like, you see someone hurting and you, maybe you can't heal their hurt, but take them to the Lord, the one who can. Encourage them. Maybe just tell someone about Jesus Christ and that God loves them. It might be awkward for you, but it's still your opportunity to not withhold good. Do not withhold good when it's in your power to act. But again, we're talking about the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. So I don't want you to be like, all right, have the power to do good. Got that out of the way for today. No, I don't want that. I want you to see the opportunity. I want to encourage you. Scripture calls you to see the opportunity. You need to become familiar with the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life nudging you to these weird random acts. I had one of those just this past week, and I'm not going to tell you the story today. It's for another day. But um, something I did was, and I was like, I don't know why I'm going to do this, but I'm going to just do it. And I got a phone, an email, and then a phone call with someone who's like, you have no idea how much that blessed me. And I will tell you, church, it was the most random, pointless thing to do. It meant nothing to me but it meant everything to them. I didn't know it, but God did, and his spirit prompted something that I thought was just kind of like, oh, lighthearted, whatever. But for them, it was very life-giving. I want to tell you something. You need to get familiar with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never give you a checklist of do's and don'ts. The Holy Spirit will prompt you to do something that reveals, clarifies, and glorifies Jesus Christ. That's what your life will do. That's what happens when when we're just obeying the prompts of the Holy Spirit, listening for him. You know, if you're, um, if you're like walking by every person who looks sad or something, you're like, okay, I'm going to be nice to you. I'm not going to withhold good. You're just doing this, and then bam, I'm a really good Christian. I did what I should. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the intentionality of looking at someone and just letting the prayer in your life be, God, is there anything? For them, I don't know why I noticed them, but is there anything that you have for me to do to them, to say to them, to be for them? Is there anything? The best way to know is that if you uh, think you have heard the voice of God, and this is really important, church, is if you think maybe God's asked you or prompted you to do something, and it seems really weird and random, do it. Do it right away, and don't hesitate. Go and obey. Obey quickly, and here's the thing that will happen. Your obedience... Your obedience will clarify your hearing. Your obedience will clarify your hearing. You'll figure out really quick whether or not that was something of the Lord. And your obedience will help you understand how to hear better. Um, my wife and I, we, we love the show Survivor ever since season one. It's a great show. It's got all this like human dynamics, power dynamics. I know it's dorky, but I still have fun. And I still want to meet Jeff Probst one day. But... Um, But the thing about it that I love is uh, there's this game where they blindfold someone. I don't know if that's how you blindfold someone. But they blindfold them, and then someone stands up on a perch, and they're the caller. And they'll be like, go left, go left. And the person's trying to do this. But there'll be like three or four callers screaming at a field full of people. 
and there'll be three or four blindfolded people for each caller. And what happens is these blindfolded people are standing there like this, and you can watch them trying to listen, figuring out whose voice is who, and, that, and you'll see someone pick up on it, and they'll take off to do something, and the caller will be like, yes, do that, do that. And like, oh, and it's so affirming. And they get more confident in moving after they obey that command they think they heard. Or if they start to do something, they're like, no, don't do that, not you. Do this. Oh, and they, what happens is obedience sharpens our hearing. So when we look at this, we need to understand we should be obeying in practical, active, moving ways. Let the Spirit of God prompt your heart and then just step back and see what wonderful things he does. Proverbs 3, 29 and 30 says this. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse anyone for no reason. When they have done you, no harm. Listen to these words. Don't get legalistic and say to yourself, well, I've never plotted against someone or my neighbor, so this doesn't apply to me. What would the spirit of the law say in this? What would the spirit of the law say? What is the real message? Don't devise schemes to advance and satisfy you at the expense of other people. Don't devise schemes to advance and satisfy you at the expense of other people at the expense of their money, at the expense of their friends, their safety, and their dignity. Don't build and devise schemes to satisfy you at the expense of someone else. That can be a very small thing. I remember a guy, a Christian guy I knew, who had a car with um, quite a few miles on it. He had gotten it on a really good deal. He drove it for a while, and then he listed it for sale. And I was like, why are you selling it? And he's like, yep, timing chain's making noise. i got to get out of it before I have to pay for it. And he sold it for more than he bought it and thought he had cleaned house. He was like, this is great. And I'm like, how long do you think that timing chain will last? I don't know, six months or so. I'm like, dude, what about them? He's like, they bought it. They could have checked it out. That's a justification. That is devising and building a scheme so that you don't have to deal with something and you don't care about what happens to them. That was his neighbor, whether he knows it or not. That was wrong. I've done things that I regret in this way, and so have you. Don't devise schemes. Don't do things that rob people of their dignity. Proverbs uh, 16 29. 